Hey everybody, this is Erica Janik, Thresholds Managing Editor, and I wanted to tell you about a special virtual event we're hosting to celebrate our seventh anniversary. It's called Stories in the Wild, and it'll be me and Threshold founder Amy Martin talking about everything it takes to make a season of the show. We'll explore what makes a story a threshold story, share our adventures from recording around the world, describe how we work with musicians to score the show, and explain why it is so long between seasons. You'll also have the chance to ask us questions. All it takes to secure your spot is a $5 donation to the show. So join us on March 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, live on Zoom. Go to thresholdpodcast.org to register. We can't wait to meet you and to celebrate seven years of Threshold together. It's not quite dawn yet. The wind is blowing pretty hard and it's cold, although not as cold as it could be. And um, I'm heading out to go um, watch the bison hunt. Welcome to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and for this third episode, we're going back to Yellowstone National Park. So I'm following another truck out to the line where the national park meets national forest and where it's legal to hunt. And when I was driving through this area yesterday, there were over 200 bison moving through it. This first season of our show is all about the American bison, this animal that we venerate as a symbol, but don't really know what to do with in real life. We saved bison from extinction, and then we kind of forgot about them. But here on the borders of Yellowstone National Park, they're not letting us forget any longer. I'm just seeing the first buffalo of the day, but they are on the other side of the river and they're right next to the road, and I don't think they can be shot over there. In case you're just joining us, here's what we've covered so far. In episode one, we got an initial overview of the Yellowstone situation. In a nutshell, bison want to migrate out of the park, and that's generating controversy. Then in episode two, we went back in time and explored how the near extermination of buffalo was part of the violent oppression of native people. And now we're going to start to weave all of this together and look at bison through the eyes of two cattle ranchers who are contemplating what bison restoration would mean to them. And I'm also going to take you with me on a buffalo hunt. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six hunters all staring up into the hills, trying to see, I guess, if something's moving up there, which makes me think it probably is. You've got blood all over the snow. It was hard. Everybody has this big dream that free roam and it's gonna be so good for it, but it's not. Bison are not allowed to go beyond a certain point, and if they do, they're hazed and are sent to slaughter. The National Park Service doesn't want to send bison to slaughter, and we don't want to be in the business of handling wildlife in this way. Buffalo has taken care of Native Americans since the beginning of time. Maybe they don't even understand agriculture. Druska Kinky lives on a cattle ranch about 30 miles north of Yellowstone in a place called Paradise Valley. It's easy to see how this area got its name. It's all snowy peaks, winding river, big sweeping meadows. As Druska showed me around, her dog and several cats and even a family of turkeys circled around her. Druska loves animals and animals love her. 
it's not an overstatement to say she's devoted her life to them. When we were little kids, you know, the the drive-in theaters were big, and so we would always go to the drive-in movies. And the movie that we went to see that I remember real clearly was Born Free. And that's where my passion for animals started. Um, and that's what I always wanted to do. How old were you, do you think, when you saw that? It was grade school, early grade school. Born Free was a big hit in 1966. It was a true story about a woman who raised an orphan lion cub and then returned it to the wild in Kenya. Even if you don't know the movie, you might have heard the song. Lots of kids dream of working with animals. Dreska made it happen. She went on to major in animal science. Then she traveled to Central Africa with the Peace Corps to teach high school students about raising livestock. And when she came home, she earned a master's degree in reproductive physiology. This no-nonsense, stick-to-itness is something she says she got from her mom. Her parents were divorced when she was young, and her mom raised Dreska and her three sisters alone. And she was your role model, you said. Mm-hmm. In what ways? Well, just being independent and resilient, knowing that, you know, you just went and did what you were going to do. And there really wasn't any question about, can I? It was, okay, I'm going to go do this. Dreska met her husband in graduate school. They moved to the ranch where he grew up, and now they raise cattle here together with their son. I spent several hours with Dreska on two different occasions, and one impression she left me with is that her cattle mean much more to her than dollars and cents. I could see it on her face when she talked about them, and I could hear it in her voice when she told me the story of her own Montana ranch version of Born Free. One of her cows had complications while trying to give birth to twins. She and her husband Rich were able to save the calves, but the mother died. So they brought the orphan brothers onto their enclosed porch, basically just brought them into a room in their house. And that became their home for 12 days. And you had to keep the temperature in there above 85, 90 degrees. And so we had a heat lamp going, the stove was roaring, and you had to feed them every two hours. What does it take to keep two orphan newborn calves alive? Most Americans have no idea. So I asked Dreska to walk me through some of the details. It was hotter than Hades on that porch. And so I, I'm over there feeding them in my shorts and my tank top because it was just so hot. And, you know, you, you feed them and then you have to potty them. And so you have to rub their butts and make sure that they know to potty. And I wished we would have owned stock and paper towels because we would have done well. The calves had weird bleeding incidents. One of them developed goiter. They would seem to be improving, and then they would regress. You know, it was just up and down and up and down. On day 12, Dreska and her husband decided the calves were doing well enough to be moved out to the barn under heat lamps. And they did pretty good. And so we grafted one of them to a cow, and that went well, and he was pretty happy. Grafting is when you get a cow to adopt a calf she didn't give birth to. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Dreska has lots of experience, though, so she made it work for both of these orphans. And then the other one with the goiter, I just kept, you know, I was feeding them four times a day. So at 2 a.m. every single night, I'm down there with Bottle. And um, he finally got a mom in May. But the story doesn't end there. The calves lost their hair for a while. They had other mysterious ailments. It was just issue after issue with these guys, but they're out on grass with their moms close where we can keep an eye on them and 
you know, you can still go up to the one, the, the first one that we grafted, he's kind of forgotten, but the other one, you can go up to him anywhere and he just wants to be petted. And if you scratch his belly, he almost rolls over like a dog. And <laughs> before he got his mom, he'd follow me up to the house to get fed and you'd open the porch door and he'd come walking in on the porch. And <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, this is where I was born. Yeah, so. yeah. And he and the dog would play in the yard. So I guess those are the reasons why you do it. The first time I met Dreska, her husband was taking a load of cattle to market, and she told me she can't go with him on these trips. They're just too hard for her. You know, you, you get attached, and you love them all, and, you know, there's so many animals that we have that we can pet and, and be around like that, and they just stand there and like it. And, and the thought of something happening to them is, is heartbreaking. Well, and I think that's something that maybe people might not understand is, you know, at the end of the game, obviously, you have to sell these calves off to become somebody's dinner. Yep. And uh, how? I think maybe the average person who never has worked with animals might not understand how you can be so passionate and, like, protective and loving of the animals. I think they might assume that if you have to sell them off that you have to cut off that side that's open and loving towards them. And How do you put all that together inside of yourself? I haven't managed to cut it off, and it's heartbreaking. And it, it, I don't know. It, it it never gets easy. Dreska was inspired to work with animals as a child. Her life has been centered around them ever since. So you're probably expecting that she's advocating for more wild bison on the landscape, right? I think the concept of free-roaming bison will will harm agriculture immensely. Dreska is not pro-bison. She's not even lukewarm on bison. She's fully against efforts to expand habitat for wild buffalo in Montana. So how did the little girl who was inspired by the movie Born Free become the woman convinced that bison herds need to stay small and contained? Okay, so there's a disease issue with bison. They've been exposed to brucellosis. In our first episode, we learned that brucellosis is a bacterial disease carried by some elk and bison in and around Yellowstone. They originally caught the disease from livestock, and now they can pass it back to cattle. So I asked Dreska to explain what this threat of disease means to her. We're under a whole different set of regulations than everybody else, and we have to follow different rules. There are no Yellowstone bison on Dreska's property. They aren't allowed to migrate that far north. But because Yellowstone elk do move across her land, she's in something called the Designated Surveillance Area, a region of Montana where the state requires extra brucellosis vigilance from cattle producers. They have to put special tags on their animals and do additional testing. And if an infection is found, ranches have to go into quarantine. That's never happened to Dreska, but it did happen to a neighbor once when he took his cattle to market. And one of his cows tested positive they made him load up everything that he had brought in. They padlocked his trailer and sent him home with a highway patrol escort. And then he was immediately quarantined and he couldn't sell anything for months. The infection was found in the fall and that was especially painful because... Fall is when we sell everything and that's the one time a year we get paid and he can't sell anything. Now, if you're a particular producer that's running on borrowed money, how are you gonna explain that to the bank? In the big picture for me, that could mean my demise. I mean, bottom line, it can mean the end for us. And I still 
don't think people understand that. And I still don't think they understand the ramifications of a quarantine. They do not get it. This feeling that people don't get it, I think that's an important piece of understanding where Dreska's coming from here. Because even without the brucellosis issue, I think there's a way she feels under siege. Like her way of life is just as endangered as any wild animal. According to the Farm Bureau, farm and ranch families are just 2.2% of the U.S. population. We don't usually think of it this way, but people who work in agriculture are a minority group in our country. And one of the annoying things about being in any minority group is a feeling of being misunderstood or just invisible in the broader culture. As someone who grew up on a farm myself, I can relate to that a little bit. It's not just that people don't get what quarantine would mean to Druska, they don't get ranching at all. I think people from away, away from this state, away from this area, need to understand that nothing is simple. The Greater Yellowstone area is one of the largest semi-intact ecosystems in the world. It's a place where we celebrate wildness and freedom for animals and ourselves. But Druska's life is a celebration of our ability to nurture animals, to intervene in their lives, to care for them with wisdom and kindness in the service of providing food. It's like her ranch is located on the fault line where wilderness and agriculture meet. So part of what we're trying to figure out when we talk about bison restoration is if our country is big enough and broad-minded enough to honor both of those traditions. I mean, in your mind, in your heart, what you said is, I'm going to take care of you because you're mine and I'll do the very best I can. And you can't do that if you have all of these threats hanging over your head that you can do nothing about. And so you feel like you failed. Many bison conservation advocates say these fears are overblown, that the risks bison pose to cattle are minimal and manageable. But what I sense in Dreska is a need for acknowledgement, acknowledgement of her fears and also of the love she has for her animals and the deep responsibility she feels for them. We are not a bunch of people out here that, that don't care about wildlife, that don't care about the land, that don't care about our own cattle. We care very deeply about all of that, and we try and make a balance, and it's hard. It's not simple. Andreska's opposition to wild bison isn't simple either. The brucellosis infection at our neighbor's place was traced to elk. As we talked about in episode one, only elk and not bison have transmitted brucellosis to cattle in the wild. But elk are free to move in and out of the park, while bison are hazed back in, are shipped to slaughter. So I asked Dreska to help me understand what's going on here. If both animals pose a risk to cattle ranchers around Yellowstone, why are we managing them so differently? Years ago, in our mountain property, when I would see an elk, it was thrilling. I, I, I just thought, wow, look at that. And now I see an elk and I think disease and I don't want to have anything to do with them. Dreska says on her ranch, they do haze elk, not back into the park, but off of their property, and they get some help from the state of Montana to do that. But that still doesn't answer the fundamental question here. Why have we decided that brucellosis-infected elk can migrate freely, but bison cannot? It's not Dreska's job to explain this apparent inconsistency in state policy. That's a question for state officials, and later this season, I'll bring you perspectives on this from the governor and others. But for now, we're going to set that aside and continue with Druska's story. 
And from her point of view, the fact that elk have transmitted brucellosis and bison have not doesn't mean all that much. Her opposition to bison isn't so much about what has happened, it's about her fears of what could happen. And she has other concerns besides brucellosis. I don't think in Montana there is a place for free-roaming bison, period. Even, even without brucellosis? Even without. Why not? I don't think there's enough resources, not in the state. She's talking about grass. In Montana, like most parts of the West, ranchers can buy permits to graze their cattle on designated sections of public land, often at rates that are well below market prices. And this puts cattle and wildlife in direct competition with each other for bites of grass. Dreska says grazing rights aren't on the top of her agenda. She feeds all of her cattle on private land. She's more worried about property damage and public safety and other issues. But grazing rights are a major factor in the conflict over wild bison overall. As such an animal lover and as someone who's been in, involved in animals for your whole life, like, is there a part of you that just would think it would be cool to have that restoration of this big animal? Or No. As I talked with Dreska, I kept trying to square her lifelong passion for animals with this flat-out no to bison restoration. And she was really patient with me as I kept throwing out possible solutions. What if we used only brucellosis-free bison and only on public land? What if conservation groups set up funds to repay ranchers for any damage bison might cause? But Dreska said it was hard for her to get behind these kinds of ideas, because that would imply that she's on board with the project of bringing bison back. And she's just not. To her, bison restoration looks like a zero-sum game. If bison win, her cattle lose. And, you know, I just got finished talking about how much they mean to me. And bottom line for me, they mean more to me than an elk or a bison. You know, you have all these people out there fighting for free-roaming bison, and it's a, it's a concept, it's a vision that they have of the Old West and bison just roaming and being happy. And we're fighting for our ability to survive here and make a living as we have for the last 60, almost 70 years. And they don't have anything to lose in their vision, and we have everything to lose in ours. Bison advocates don't agree that they have nothing to lose. They say a lot has been lost already, and they're trying to regain a small piece of it. But I hear Dreska's point. She feels like she and other ranchers may have to deal with the downsides of something that they never asked for to begin with. Because it seems like to me that there's an awful lot of people that move here anymore and try and change it. It confuses me because if it was good enough for them to want to be here, why the big emphasis on let's change it some more? Dreska feels like outsiders who don't understand her are coming into her world and trying to change it. And I think I get how that's threatening. But the people who could probably understand that feeling best are Native Americans. To, to me, I, I am a rancher too, but, you know, we encroach on all these animals' habitat and, and then we play the victim most of the times, and I don't think that's right. We'll have more after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and in this episode, we're getting perspectives on bison from two cattle ranchers. 
We spent the first part of the show with Druska Kinky, who lives north of Yellowstone, and now we're going to hear from Kale Thomas. Your last name's Thomas? Yeah, I go by Thomas. 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 Okay. Yeah. Why did I think that on Facebook it looked like it, your last name's are with an S? That's the ma lover. And. The ma means cow. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Kale raises cattle and teaches Salish language on the Flathead Reservation in the northwest part of Montana. I met him at a livestock auction, and as his nickname indicates, he really loves cows, just like Dreska. But he thinks wild bison and cattle can coexist. He says the risks posed by wild animals are just part of the deal if you're going to ranch in Montana. You know, I mean, we run cattle up in the mountains and... and you know, a wolf eats one of our cows, and, all, you know, it's the wolf's fault for, for, for doing what he should do, you know, feed himself and his family, and and then we play the victim. Like, I, I don't know, it seems silly to me. Kale says these kinds of debates always come down to the same core question. Do we think of wild animals as something that's in our way, a nuisance or a menace that we have to control, or do we approach them like they have a right to be here and it's our job to adapt to them? A lot of Indian people yet, they, they still have a certain, carry a certain amount of respect for nature and, and plants and animals and them sort of things. You know, we're, we're taught to be that way. Kale wants more habitat opened up for wild bison, and he also wants more opportunities to hunt them. Many different tribes used to hunt on the land that became Yellowstone National Park, but hunting has been forbidden inside the park since the early 20th century. In the mid-2000s, the state of Montana began issuing a small number of permits for people to hunt just as the bison crossed the park boundary. Then, tribes from four different reservations reasserted their treaty rights to hunt on the park boundary too. So now, there's a state hunt and several different tribal hunts, all happening on a few small pieces of land, two of which are just outside of the town of Gardner. I talked to Kale a few weeks after he'd gone there, intending to hunt with his uncle. We were so disgusted about how things was that we, we just left. What do you mean? It, it's just not our way of hunting. I don't, I don't think the way that me and my uncle was brought up that we believe in and, and how the hunt is going now. They turned around and drove the five hours home empty-handed, he says, because they did not agree with how this hunt was set up. Basically, the buffalo come out in this small area called BD Gulch, and you, you wait for the bison to come out of the park, and as soon as they get to the, the shooting area, which is really small, because there are so many hunters, you got hunters shooting at the same buffalo, um, and then two or three different people trying to claim that buffalo and people arguing about it and fighting, things like that. I'm here in BD Gulch. And basically on a bison hunt stakeout, which is kind of bizarre. I'm sitting in my truck on the side of the road, and a whole bunch of other trucks are pulled over here too. As the bison try to migrate north out of the park, they get funneled here through Beatty Gulch, with the Yellowstone River on one side and a steep ridge on the other. It's a pinch point on their migratory path, and the boundary for the park cuts right through it. There's no sign or fence, but the hunters know where the line is. On one side of it, the bison cannot be shot. On the other, they can. So this is where the hunters line up and wait. And right now, a group of bison is approaching. Okay, so you can see some bison now um, getting closer, very, very close to the park boundary line. These bison don't seem alarmed by all the vehicles pulled over and the dozens of people staring at them. These are Yellowstone bison. They deal with lines of curious humans all the time. Usually, the people watching them are just holding cameras. 
but today they have guns. I'm just glad that um, we're able to at least get... I'm talking to some hunters when all the trucks start to pull away from BD Gulch. The bison there had turned back toward the park, but some others had been spotted just a few miles away, heading to the park boundary. Well, all the hunters are moving away from this spot, so I guess I will too. So I jump back in my truck and join the parade of vehicles racing up to a ridge where the bison are about to cross out of the park. Once I get a glimpse of the animals moving toward us, I pull over to watch. Another truck pulling up behind me. Hunter walking across the road with a scope and a gun. There are a lot of people with guns spreading out across the ridge, and the bison seem to become agitated by all the activity. They start to run. There are one, two, three, four, five bison that I can see, and I think there's a couple I can't see. I'm gonna see a bison die here in a minute or two. Oh shit. You're good, you're good there. He gave me the thumbs up. One, two, three people with guns running towards the herd. I saw six bison get killed. Context is everything when it comes to making sense of a story. So here are some crucial bits of context for this bison hunt. The first comes directly from what we learned in our last episode. Bison were central to many Native Americans and they've been denied the opportunity to hunt these animals here for over a hundred years. So Kale says even though he may not like the way this hunt is currently being conducted, He also doesn't appreciate judgment from outsiders. A guy come up to us and and basically told us how awful we was for hunting and that the bison should roam free and them sorts of things. And what was your response to that? Uh, You know, basically I I told him that we're feeding our family and that that, uh, this is our tribal hunting right, this is our treaty right, and... We basically lost everything as a tribal people, so I don't think you have a right to comment on this. Another thing to keep in mind is that if we're going to try to imagine a future with more bison in it, we probably also need to imagine a future with more bison hunting. Humans have been the bison's primary predator for thousands of years. And in fact, some of the key people responsible for saving bison from extinction did so because they wanted to be able to hunt them in the future. Hunters have done a lot to preserve habitat and foster the restoration of wildlife. I've never hunted myself, but I did help pack out an elk that a friend shot once. I tied a rope around my waist and dragged a quarter of it through the snow for three miles in grizzly bear country. And I think of that as a peak experience. So I'm not anti-hunting, and I don't think I'm particularly squeamish. But this hunt is set up in a strange way. There's the issue of the small area for hunting and the fact that it's mostly happening right next to the road. And then there's the time of year it takes place. Elk, deer, and most other large game are hunted in the fall before they've been battered by winter weather. But this hunt happens when the bison are at their weakest, at the end of the winter, when they're hungry and many of the females aren't far from giving birth. And it's not uncommon for bison to get wounded in this hunt and then run back across the park line where hunters can't go. Then park officials have to try to track down wounded animals, and sometimes they can't find them all. You know, the way we were brought up, you're supposed to, to show an, the animal respect and, 
you know, it's a spiritual thing. It's supposed to be because you are, you are taking something's life. Were you surprised? I, I was. Uh, it was pretty shocking. Um, pretty sad to see to see it, it happen the way that it is. Kale wants the right to hunt inside park boundaries, something park officials strongly oppose. But they do agree on a different solution opening up more habitat for wild bison in other places so they could have a true fair chase bison hunt. Do you think you're going to try and do another bison hunt anytime soon? I don't think I'll ever take part in the bison hunt again. This hunt is happening in this small area at this odd time of year, not because it makes sense for the bison, but because we, the humans involved here, can't agree on a better plan. So whether they get loaded onto trailers and shipped to slaughterhouses or shot when they step over the park boundary, a significant number of these bison are going to end up dead every year, one way or the other, until or unless we figure out other places for them to go and a process for getting them there. It's a big political game that's been played at the expense of the buffalo. In our next episode, we'll meet Robbie Magnan, who runs the buffalo program on the Fort Peck Reservation. He says he has a solution to the Yellowstone conundrum, but he also says some people are fighting it every step of the way. This episode was sponsored by the Minneapolis College of Art and Design Sustainable Design Online Program and by Montana Public Radio, and also by listeners like you. Threshold is produced by me, Amy Martin, with help from Nick Mott, Zoe Rome, Jackson Barnett, Nora Sachs, and Josh Burnham. Music by Travis Yost.